Hey, San Diego Nora fans, Nora here. We are still on vacation, so here is a conversation from the podcast 30 Wood between me and Ardeth Wynott about carceral feminism, decarceral feminism, and activism. Hope you enjoy. Making change on my mind, change you can modify, change you can quantify. Look, making change on my mind. This is 30 Wood a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Erdeth Wynott. We have such an interesting and deep conversation about abolition and what that means in contemporary activism. Ardeth is a professor, an activist, and the author of the Fernwood book, Insurgent Love. We have never met, but Ardeth is someone who comes from the same generation and, as it turns out, place in the world as I do. I especially enjoy the Donovan Bailey reference just to date her and me at the precise moment of our lives. (laughs) I'm sure you will enjoy it as much as I did. Ardeth, why not? Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nora. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm surviving the plague of, of many plagues. <laughs> Getting ready for the next one, right? Getting ready for the next daycare plague. Yep. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself for listeners who might not be familiar uh, with your work or with you? So I am a professor at Mount Allison University and formerly uh, an artist, a performance artist. And I worked in a spoken word collective here in Halifax by the name of Word is Bond Collective and with a contemporary arts group called Finn Performing Arts. So, um, yeah, my work is mostly on the intersections between mental health, violence and family safety and family health. So I'm interested in the intersections between health and legal institutions, but mostly I'm interested in those distressing experiences that we have relationally with each other in intimate relationships and in our homes and kinship networks and how they are or aren't properly addressed by the systems that claim to support us. Oh, that is so interesting. And so how did that inform your recent book? Yeah, so I've been kicking around in the domestic violence crisis response world for about 20 years. So my first job actually was with Halifax Regional Police as a victim services counselor when I was 19. Wow. I was the youngest one in the unit by far. um, And I'm like a short, small person. And so it was a little bit of a rough ride for me being the youngest person in the unit and having to to be a victim's advocate in... um, in a station, it was called East Division in Halifax. So our police station was sort of up in an industrial park behind what was then an oil refinery on the shores of Halifax Harbor. But it was really, you know, um, a great training ground for me to understand what really happens, like what happens in real time when police show up to an incidence of family violence or, you know, what they would call domestic disturbance. You know, I discovered early on that the systems that we have to respond to folks in crisis, both the emergency medical systems and policing, don't really care for us in the ways that we need to be cared for. And in many ways, they make it worse. And, you know, by the time I read Angela Davis's book, uh, by the time I read about all of that incredible Black feminist thought that 
introduced me to prison abolition, I was already convinced that those systems weren't working. And so, you know, I bumped around the domestic violence and family violence world, both working with victims and then later folks who were incarcerated for serious violent crimes. So I ran uh, poetry programs in the maximum security unit of Nova Institution for Women and later in general population at Dorchester Institution in New Brunswick. So I've hung out with those who were both survivors of police intervention and family violence, and then with those who who erred grievously and caused grievous harm, in many cases, homicide, and were in in state-funded institutions, and also not receiving the supports they needed to be safer folks in the community. And so the book that came out in October 2021, Insurgent Love, Talk to me about the process of the experiences that you had working in these settings and moving into a, a place where you felt like you were ready to write about it in a, in a formal way, in a long form way, in a book. Yeah, Insurgent Love was not the book I intended to write. Uh, the book that I wanted to write was about how effective and transformative some of the accountability circles and transformative justice movements were in, you know, settler colonial Canada and the United States. And I did a series of interviews. I interviewed folks, you know, in Oakland, Michigan, Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. And I had a lot of data and I had a lot of really compelling stories that I wanted to tell. But ultimately, the book I ended up writing is the book that I felt that those movements really needed because the most urgent thing that I heard from folks in community was that, you know, they didn't have a way to respond to very high risk situations of family violence, meaning high risk for homicide, suicide, or, or some form of lethal or serious violence. And there wasn't a, a, a strong established set of practices developed in community to think about how we respond to homicide. So we have like, you know, the translation of a lot of those like original indigenous legal practices, which are what we call transformative justice. And a lot of the analysis offered in, in black feminism gets translated in these really neoliberal ways. And so we, we think about everything in terms of the, in the two individuals that harmed the victim and the, uh, or survivor, and then the person who perpetrated the harm. But, you know, homicide really asks us, well, what do we do as a community when there is no survivor when someone didn't survive. And, you know, how do we think about those sort of transformative practices that we can put in place to have more of a long-term view on how we prevent that kind of violence? And how can we take a tragedy and turn it into something that does help transform the conditions that made it happen? And so part of my about face in the book, you know, I, I had a really long <clears throat> piecemeal manuscript with, interview snippets and data that I'd, I'd been collecting, plus my own experiences, because I often journal about the frontline work that I do, you know, over 20 years. But the book became much more focused um, during the writing process when we had the largest mass shooting in recent Canadian history, the port peak massacre uh, here in Nova Scotia, while I was about halfway through the book. So that was a real pivotal turning point because it really solidified the kind of analysis that was missing for me, both in abolitionist circles and, of course, in the mainstream media. And it really helped me focus on the place that I live. So I live on unceded Mi'kmaq territory here in Nova Scotia. And some of my experiences with family violence and working with survivors have been over multiple decades and multiple generations in my life. And so 
you know, that particular tragedy became the anchor. And of course, uh, one of the incredible things about working with Fernwood was that, you know, my editor, Fazila Jiwa, really worked with me as a development editor and as a comrade who really understood what was at stake for me politically and ethically in the book. And the process that I had in sort of refining, refining the manuscript and refining what ended up becoming the book um, rested on a lot of discussion about how the process was going. Because, of course, we were, we were living through a global emergency, you know, living through a pandemic while drafting the book and family violence spiked intensely during that time. And so there was definitely a greater urgency um, to the process mid pandemic. Wow. Yeah. Like I, I, I kind of talk about how books that were written during the pandemic, and it's something that I always experienced as well, creates this body of pandemic literature, you know, that, that this, this kind of writing that is deeply influenced by the fact that we are all living in an era that feels like historic and like nothing none of us or many of us have ever experienced before. And so I'm wondering, like, how how did you experience trying to, like, take all of the knowledge that you've had from the work that you've done for 20 years and how did like did it clash with what you were experiencing during the pandemic or did you find yourself saying yes uh, exactly this is what we were talking about this is what it would look like when you hit a crisis moment like how did you navigate that and i'm thinking not just the pandemic but also the porta pick uh, shooting like like were you able to see clearly what was going on instantly or did that take some time of discussion and reflection and 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 debate you know, I think one of the things about about doing frontline work and also having, you know, having a trauma history, I, and I wrote about this in the book, I have my own trauma history and my own experiences being a frontline person during other folks' emergencies. And one of the things that you learn to do is to triage. And I think that our ability to triage in times of crisis is one of those survival skills that many of us are developing in our own communities that are going to help us with collective organizing, that are going to help us set the agenda for, for what we deal with when and how. And, you know, I think definitely the effect of the pandemic, it really clarified for me what I needed to triage in terms of if I was only ever going to write one book about this 20 years of my life and all of these incredible stories that were shared with me, what are the most important things for me to say? And definitely that that decision put, pulled me away from an academic contribution, of course. I mean, you know, I'm an ap academic. That's how I feed myself and my family. And so it felt really risky moving away from, from a scholarly book, which is what I'd been contracted to write. Um, and I found that becoming less and less important to me. So it was very surprising for me to win a scholarly writing book award. <laughs> given that, you know, many of the conversations I had, uh, both with my editor and with myself and with, you know, friends during the writing process was that it really didn't feel like a scholarly book anymore. It pushed so far into feminist autoethnography and personal reflection. It felt a lot more like, like, uh, shattered pieces of a memoir, um, you know, where I just tried to make a mosaic of so many pieces that, you know, spelled something in bold print and big letters that hopefully, you know, would be read by someone who only skimmed it. Mm, right. Abolition, uh, there, it, I don't want to say it's having a moment because I think it's it's kind of like an, an obvious place that people end up when they start to do this kind of activism and they start to think about 
what carceral systems do to individuals and to societies in general. But as someone that has been doing abolition work for a long time, how would you characterize this moment? Yeah, I mean, I I have this conversation with my students a lot because I I teach a seminar on abolition and, you know, their timelines of political consciousness were so much different than mine and they were at a different stage in their life Um, when they encountered these ideas. You know, I think I would categorize, especially in the area of family violence, I would categorize abolition as a moment of reckoning. Um, And I think, you know, I think you're still not taken seriously when you have an abolitionist argument. I, up until I published this book, I was contacted regularly in the media. Anytime there was a family violence homicide, I was contacted. And of course I started saying no, because, you know, I made a rule in the month of December, I don't talk about murder. (laughs) You know, it's like a way to give myself a break, but I was really like a go-to person because I was fast and I would always respond and I would always make time for an interview. And then as soon as the book came out, and of course the book came out during the mass casualty commission on the Porta Peak massacre, and it was an abolitionist argument about how abolition would have actually prevented that from happening. And it was like crickets. And the only journalists who would talk to me during that period would edit out any mention of my book or any mention of abolition. And so when we talk about abolition having a moment, what I see it as, it's like, it's not that we're having a moment where abolition is more accepted. We're having a moment where often abolitionist arguments are are just used to either scapegoat someone as too radical or to say, yes, we consulted community, we commissioned a defunding police report here in Halifax City Council. So therefore we've done, it's become like a radical check mark, right? It's become more mainstream appropriate. It's been a way for folks who are absolutely not abolitionist to try to position themselves as looking a little bit more radical. And the way, the way that I've seen that happening is definitely through the media, but also through, you know, city council processes and the way that, you know, elected officials are responding to abolitionist calls. But in, in the family violence and domestic violence industry specifically, I do think there is and has been a reckoning a long time coming, um, specifically in, the, in Canada and, and Britain, because, you know, the, the areas of research and advocacy that happen around family violence homicide are the most conservative and often racist and fascist areas of white feminism. And so, you know, it's a bit of a like a battle royale happening now in the industry where I don't think that you can call yourself a feminist who does work on domestic violence and ignore 40 years of black feminist critique of carceral feminism. You can't talk about policing in this take it for granted way as if that's the only legitimate approach to responding to or reducing intimate partner and family violence. And so I think, you know, I'm hopeful that this book that Fernand was brave enough to publish is like, you know, one of those tiny rocks that get thrown at this like huge tower and industry where, you know, carceral feminism has really colluded with police and policing in ways that have made state violence worse for Black and Indigenous women, women with mental health challenges and folks, you know, who are having really negative experiences, um, trying to use policing as a strategy to get safer. 
While you're talking, I was wondering, uh, and I, it's partly based on my own experience, having written a book about radical feminism and, and mostly it being ignored by the feminist establishment, how has your book been received by the, the, uh, the family domestic violence uh, industry? Yeah, I think I'm really lucky where I am in the Maritimes because, you know, many of the mentors that were formerly carceral feminists that you know, were my supervisors and and the folks who helped me when I was like 19 years old, showing up in a puncture proof vest to do victim support. Um, many of them have become abolitionists quietly on their own as they have like tried to exit cultural feminism in their own careers. And some of them have started other organizations, some of them working as consultants, returned to grad school. And so, you know, we had this sort of a quiet on the download network where it's been received really well. I've heard from a lot of folks in the UK talking about how absolutely horrific the rise of transphobic carceral feminism has been there in the UK and how my book was really helpful to them in like helping them solidify why and how our conversations on homicide need to be where abolition goes. Um, but it's it's really difficult because, you know, one of the things I argue in the book, and it's not popular uh, amongst my peers on the left or conservatives, but I talk about gun control and like non-state mediated gun control. And that has it's never received well. I mean, we saw what happened recently. You know, Trudeau's gun laws were opposed even by the NDP. So, you know, no one wants to talk about the disarmament of communities. We're happy to say, no, I don't want my tax dollars spent on a tank in Hamilton to roll over protesters, but I still want to be able to keep these like six semi-assault rifles that I got at like Cabela's. Um, and so, yeah, that, that definitely hasn't gone over well, but, you know, ultimately it's survivors who convinced me that we need abolition and we need abolitionist strategies for thinking through very dangerous situations in our communities. And it's survivors who've received it well. Um, and it's survivors that I hear from the most. And so, you know, that definitely makes it easy um, for me to handle those days when I get, you know, 180 messages from the pro gun lobby in Ontario calling me horrible names, you know, in Twitter DMs. But that that comes with the territory in, in publishing radical work. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's been so much fun about this podcast is that most of the writers that I've talked to are also activists. And I've asked everyone, and I'm going to ask you, about that connection between activism and writing. And everyone's had a really different response. So how have you used activism to inform your writing? How do you use your writing to advance activism? What is the interplay between these two things? Well, I mean, I wish I could say that I had, uh, you know, this like set of solid values and strategies that inform my work. But I have to say that it was like an excruciating journey of doubt <laughs> for me and, and with my writing. I mean, because I was a poet, because I was part of this incredible, mostly Black poet spoken word collective here in the Maritimes for many years, my understanding of the role of what I had to say always was in community. It was in an audience and it was in an audience where there was a second mic on the stage for folks to respond. And so I always feel just and write about what I say in partnership and in communication and 
in response to the communities that give me the love of listening. That's really hard to do with a book. There's like a, the chronology of the conversation is something where like someone might read this book 10 years from now and I won't be there to hear their feedback, you know, potentially. But I think one of the things that struck me about writing a book, I, you know, I just made the decision to be honest and to be vulnerable about what it's meant to be an abolitionist working in homicide um, and homicide survivor advocacy. And at the end of the day, whether it's, it's accepted well or not, at least I know that I was honest, um, as honest as I possibly could be, you know, without being harmful to the folks who share their stories with me. And there is an intimacy to a book that you don't get in organizing, that you don't get in a public conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm like on a real-time listserv with abolitionists in Fredericton trying to oppose the construction of a new prison, there's not that intimacy of like curling up with a book, reading it quietly and having that reflection. You know, the my relationship to the reader is like, I don't, I don't even get to be in that intimate space with them. And I think that that's, reading in a whole different register. And that's a conversation that happens in a different register in a different way that I'm used to. And so I feel, you know, now that I've written the book, I understand what it means to offer a book as a gift of love back to the communities who shared their stories with me. And I have a lot more respect for the like intimacy of the reader. Like I don't feel like I should be entitled to have a conversation with them anymore that I should expect that. Um, is that's like a different type of a different type of offering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how did your writing then be influenced by the fact that you come from these, these different kinds of writing worlds, a, a poetry world and also the academic world? Yeah. I'm an absolute nightmare for an editor. My, <laughs> it's true. No, I'm horrible. My grammar is so bad. I, cause I write how I speak and that's what I learned to do as a performer is to write how I speak. And that's obviously like the antithesis to academic writing. Um, and really it was just the patience of, you know, Fiziologiwa is like an absolute genius. I call her like the radical book doula um, in the way that she was able to coax something that made sense out of my like nonsensical at times manuscript. I also was like obsessed with formatting in the book. Like I had a freak out because I was like, no, there has to be a way to separate my internal reflections from the like academic portions of the book. And so in the manuscript I handed in, it had all these ridiculous formatting decisions. Some was in, italics, some was in like three stars to indicate this other thing. And so, you know, it might've worked well in like a poster presentation or like a video, but it didn't work as a book. And it definitely didn't work, you know, with eBooks or whatever. So my biggest difficulty was in the formatting of the book, because when I stared, I was so intimidated by staring at like a blank. When I read the PDF manuscript, I saw this blank page with all the same kinds of font. And like, I have ADHD and I struggle as a reader. And so I was like intimidated by the, you know, the actual material format of the book. How have you evolved as a writer uh, over this process? Did, did you did you feel like there was a change in your writing, or or do you think that you pretty much are where you were when you started it? I think that I'm braver. Uh, I think that I'm braver about writing in ways that challenge the academic form, and you know that bravery is not disconnected from the fact that I have like the uber privilege of being a tenured professor, so I can challenge 
the format of academic writing in ways that I couldn't pre-tenure, um, given how many student loans I have. So, you know, that's part of it. But I also feel the reception of the book and the way that I was supported through the editorial process and the development of the book really made me feel like there is a there is a way that I can weave together the kind of writing that makes sense to me and the kind of writing that readers are used to reading. I'm trying to figure out like what it means to write a poetic essay in my own voice. And also knowing that like the average reading level for most folks in my province is grade six. And, you know, adult literacy is something that I think a lot about in terms of the accessibility as a work. And I'm not really interested in, you know, writing experimental, cool texts that can only be read or interpreted or, or understood by folks who are really far outside my community. And I think that's how I reckon with being a settler on this territory is it's like, I feel like I have to anchor myself and connect to this place, um, which was also a big decision when I was shopping the, you know, the proposal for the book around Fernwood being in this place and sort of intimately understanding what it meant to be a settler in the same ter territory and committing to be here and stay here make a difference here um, that made a difference for me hmm. have you made peace with the fact that the book is set in stuck in time like you can't go back and change things and that things may evolve in your own thinking no I'm I've just accepted the fact that I'm gonna read it probably in three years and cringe like I'll have to, I'll have to get <laughs> Botox before I read it again in three years because I'm gonna cringe so intensely that like my face is gonna freeze in that position right and I think I'm okay with that because I like I've had the unfortunate experience of finding poems that I, you know, performed at big events when I was 25 and being like, oh my God, I didn't, I did. That's so cheesy, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think I'm okay with that because I think that that's the price you pay for vulnerability. And mm -hmm. I hope that I change and I hope that the book felt very unfinished to me. But that was honest because I didn't have the answers in a lot of ways that I wanted to have. So, you know, I left the last chapter of the book really open um, as offerings to be taken up by whoever wanted to take them up and sort of respond to or refine or change or critique or argue with the offers that I the, the solutions that I proposed. And so I don't know. I hope I read it, especially the last chapter. And I roll my eyes and think, geez, I was like so naive or, or the answer was right in front of me. And I, you know, didn't put two and two together. Well, I wonder, did you leave it open as well in some hope that you'll be able to respond to it in, a, in, in the years that you might have those answers? I mean, maybe. I think part of what felt really heavy about this book was that like, this is my punctuation point at the end of two decades in family violence. And I want to move back into thinking about community safety and, and mental health um, and not talking and thinking about and responding to violence all the time. Because I think in order to survive, I think um, sometimes we have to take a break from from the intensity and, and the mess of doing that kind of work. I mean, I know lots of folks who have done family violence crisis support for, you know, four or five decades, and I, I don't know how they do it. So... You know, this is kind of like the way that I'm like tying up the ribbon on, on those two decades of my life, because it is it's really demoralizing to 
to go through the grueling process of becoming an abolitionist who does work on family violence homicide and then continuing to hear the same arguments to invest in police, give police more guns, have a coercive control law, like to continue to hear the same bad ideas over and over again, knowing that when we talk about family violence homicide, those bad ideas that these like nonprofits send to the House of Commons, there's a body count associated to investing in those and continuing to platform those carceral feminist ideas. So, yeah, yeah. One of the things that stands out about your book is the cover. Tell us mm. about the cover art. <laughs> yeah. The cover art was created by um, a dear comrade and a friend of mine, Emily Davidson, who's a graphic designer and an artist here in Jibuktuk. And my conversations with Emily were really quite hilarious because so the idea of the um, the heart and the flowers was really about, you know, part of how I manage like, you know, for example, when I talk about family violence homicides in the media, sometimes I get uh, like anonymous letters with grisly details about, you know, homicides or attempted homicides that have happened. So I, I receive a lot of disclosures of really intense and like often traumatic details on other people's lives. And so the way that I manage that is uh, I have a flower garden, this totally ridiculous uh, rose garden in my backyard, which my dogs and my toddler constantly like ruin and trample on and destroy. But that is part of how I manage like I'll do a little bit of writing and then I go outside and I like put my knees in the dirt and like get messy, but I try to grow something that's like smells nice and is good for the bees. And so that was, that was part of, you know, what I wanted to offer in the book is like this idea that like things will grow and things will die and things will grow. And there is growth in the compost of what grows. So it was part of my, like, it was a selfish expression of my own healing, I suppose. And so the plants that were chosen, the plants that I discussed with Emily, um, to have growing on the cover of the book are all like highly resilient native plants on the territory that we both live in. And so that, you know, that was mostly her decision and she sort of selected every single plant like very strategically. And then, you know, the colors in the book, we had this hilarious conversation like, okay, well, what colors represent like the, the visceral intensity of a homicide but also joyfulness in play because some of the ideas that, you know, other designers had, or maybe the publisher had was like to have a very serious book, like the way we think about like caution tape and flashing lights and didn't want to have that. I wanted to have something that had like tones that inspire joyfulness, but also didn't gloss over the really visceral reality of homicide. And like the viscerality is the heart, um, which we wanted to make like a tiny little bit grotesque, <laughs> Because like violence, you know, to that degree is grotesque. And so, you know, those were all the conversations that went into the image. And Emily was so lovely and patient, and I'm sure has never had a client like as ridiculous as I was about making sure that it was really honest in terms of what it presented visually. And then I had this hilarious conversation with Fernwood because folks loved the cover art so much that folks who read the book wanted a copy of the print. And so they said, well, can we, can we print some of these and, and have them available to folks to like put up on the wall? And I was like, yes, but then they printed them and it didn't say the word abolition on it. And I like freaked out and I was like, no, it has to have a commitment to abolition. And so they gave me all of the prints 
And my partner, who's an artist, he went to like art school in Portland. Uh, I made them stay up all night with me and stencil bomb all of the prints with disarm, defund, dismantle over top of this beautiful image, sort of like totally destroying it in the process and probably giving ourselves cancer with how much spray paint we breathed in. But um, you know, that's another lovely thing about working with a radical publisher is they really had the patience to deal with, you know, being a, like, I suppose I was being a bit of a radical diva, but it just didn't seem right to me that folks could put this beautiful image on the wall with like no indication of the, you know, the commitment to abolition behind it, which is something I wasn't willing to let go of. Of course. Oh, I love that. Uh, the last question that I'm asking everyone in this series, well, the last question before I have some some rapid fire, quick questions for you, is why is radical publishing so important? Because books aren't incredibly incredible things. Um, you know, I like to think about all the books that I found in the Mississauga Public Library when I was like a super lost preteen, wandering around the library, which was actually in the mall where I grew up, and how much those books changed my life, and so. I think about them as objects. I mean, yes, e-titles are important, but I think about them as objects that are going to be discovered in unintended ways and that hopefully might survive the sorts of emergencies that our planet is facing. And so I think about the next generation of readers, really, when I think about books. Okay, so here are some rapid questions for you. What's your favorite place to read and what's your favorite place to write? I have a little white rocking chair that I used to nurse my daughter in when I was on mat leave. And uh, that is definitely my favorite reading chair. That's the reading chair that we share. Um, She's growing too tall and too big for us to share it together, but that's definitely where I do my reading. And your writing? Um, My office overlooks the backyard and the flower garden. It's like right in between all the bedrooms upstairs in my house. And the floor is covered in blankets and dog hair because my dogs come up here with me when I write and you know pant and bark and make it real stinky in here (laughs) (laughs) what's on your to read pile right now oh yeah I have this book uh by Ray Atchison on sort of applies abolitionist thinking this defund disarm dismantle thinking to uh like geopolitical security and global military intervention so I'm really excited about that. So it's like abolishing state violence. And uh, I'm revisiting The Care Crisis by Emma Dowling, which I read a long time ago. But I'm excited to, to reread that. And um, there's another book on my to-read pile called Health Communism, which is like kind of like a Marxist, Marxist intervention into like a lot of the critical health studies work. Because um, ex- uh, the next project that I want to move into is working with first responders. So I'm really interested in this idea of like first responders for abolition. Um, so yeah, there's a few titles in there on veteran mental health, like one on moral injury. Do you have a ritual that prepares you to write? Yeah, I make a cup of tea every time. Like before we had our conversation today, I made uh, a cup of peppermint tea. That's my, that's my ritual to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, every night. Okay. What are you doing for fun these days? Oh, for fun. We definitely, <clears throat> we need more fun. Um, so my daughter's been trying to learn how to stunt on her pink scooter, which has these like pink LED lights that light up. And so we've been going out and she's like, she's like three and a half and should not be stunting, but she has like a need for speed and no fear. 
So we've been sort of like zooming around the neighborhood, trying to find like little hills and small curbs that she can jump on her three wheel scooter, which gives me exercise. Cause she's now she's going so fast that I have to like sprint like Donovan Bailey style to try and catch up with her now. <laughs> what is a book that changed your life? Yeah, I think Our Prison's Obsolete by Angela Davis. Absolutely. I mean, like, that's the cheesy thing to say as an abolitionist, but, you know, to, like, a young person who spent a lot of time, work, like, hanging out in a police station and responding to every 1049 domestic violence call, it was a lifesaver. It was, like, you know, the lifeline that I needed thrown to me at the time, and I'm ever grateful uh, to Angela Davis for offering that book. The last question is, who is someone you look up to? I'm going to say uh, my former my former boss at Halifax Regional Police, uh, Verona Singer, who's now an independent independent academic. She teaches crim at St. Mary's University. She uh, she walked away from Halifax Regional Police and did a PhD, actually talking to survivors about experiences in high risk domestic violence. And I think that you know she is one of the most principled uh, and brilliant and dedicated community workers. Um, we could be happy to have in my community. And I think she definitely really changed my life. She was the first feminist I ever met. Somebody called themselves a feminist anyway. Yeah. And I think that the work that she continues to do now is even more important than what she was doing back then. Where can people get a copy of Insurgent Love? Oh, I would say go to the Fernwood website or your local indie bookstore. Or if you live in New Brunswick, apparently Chapters in New Brunswick is carrying copies of it. Um, Chapters, but only in New Brunswick. Um, Or you could come see me and we could like trade gardening help for one of the many copies that are in my office at home. (laughs) I know what that's like. Uh, Arda, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, this was lovely. I hope you have a great day. You've been listening to my conversation with Ardeth Wynott as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. 30 Wood is a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Check out Harbinger's radical left-wing podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Pisces years old, lo and behold, a fortress of magnitude, they can't subdue, liberation is radical, you're telling me my dreams have to be practical, when all these global systems are tyrannical, point of view more than two.